traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Hello, it's Basha here, and you're listening to the Slow Newscast from Tortoise. It was 9.30 at night on Tuesday, the 14th of June, and a Boeing 767 was supposed to take off from a military runway at Boscombe Down in the UK, and it was bound for Kigali, the capital of Rwanda. The private plane had been chartered by the UK government at a cost of half a million pounds, and it was supposed to be carrying the first group of asylum seekers being deported under a new immigration policy. But after a really frantic legal battle, the plane was left empty and the flight was grounded. Ministers in Boris Johnson's government believe that this policy is the answer to defeating people smuggling gangs. Polls suggest that Conservative voters support the idea. But Prince Charles, heir to the throne, has called the policy appalling. The Archbishop of Canterbury called it ungodly. And if you've been listening for a while to this podcast, you know that we like to go deeper in our investigations. And in this episode, we wanted to understand where this Rwanda plan has come from. The government has called this policy a world first, but it isn't. It's been tried before and it didn't end well. I'm handing over to Hashi Mohammed to investigate. It's a Sunday afternoon in mid-May. I'm sitting in a hotel room speaking with the help of an interpreter to a thin young man, though not so much younger than I am. His face is all sharp angles, peaks and valleys of cheekbones and tired eyes, his chest curled inwards inside his T-shirt, in a measure of safety, maybe, or of retreat. His name is Simon, and at the age of 17, he took the life-changing decision to leave his home country of Eritrea. Outside the room we're in, the world is barreling heedlessly forward. At a conservative estimate, there are more than 20 million refugees in the world and more than 4 million asylum seekers. And even though most are living in developing countries, every day the frustration of the world's richest countries is on display. A deportation flight has just whisked seven Jamaican nationals out of England. A search and rescue team that saved 14,000 lives is now facing 20 years jail time in Sicily. And the morning of our interview, the headline on the Mail on Sunday is printed in what I'd guess is size 200 font. And it reads, Rwanda Asylum Plan is Working. Inside the room, the air is still. We are suspended in some place between past and present. It's a feeling that has gripped me these past few weeks and really knocked the breath out of me a little bit. Did the Israelis give you money? Like cash? Yeah. How much did they give you? 3,500 dollars. In cash? Yeah. They were being told or promised that when they arrive in uh, Rwanda, there would be a refugee camp where they could uh, apply for asylum and that they would be protected uh, during the 
processing of their uh, asylum pro procedure. Then, uh, from the airport, uh, they were sent to a hotel, and the hotel was paid for the next three nights. And then some immigration officers came to the hotel, and they asked them, so where do you want to go? And then the Eritrean refugee said, there, there should be a, a refugee camp here that should receive us. And then they said that, no, there is no refugee camp. If you have money, yeah, if you can somehow make a living, then you can just stay here and live here. But we don't have a refugee camp here. Or you go somewhere else. I'm having this conversation because the state of things today is triggering the worst kind of deja vu for me. In the middle of April, the Home Office announced its plan to send asylum seekers from the UK to Rwanda. They said this plan would crack down on people smugglers, that it would save people's lives. They called it a world first plan. Which is a world first. It is a migration and economic development. But it isn't a world first at all, not by a long shot. And I have to wonder, hearing Simon's story, if by telling us that it is a world first, the government is toying with us. It's as if they are saying, don't bother Googling this. Don't look for any evidence to the contrary. Don't search for what happened to people affected by similar plans in the past. Because what you'll find, undoubtedly, is evidence of brutality, unlawfulness and downright inhumanity. So they couldn't even like stay there temporarily under protection as a refugee. So they didn't see that how, how they could uh, stay there and live there. And that's why they decided to leave. That was the only option. They couldn't like continuously stay in the hotel because it's very expensive. Like, and they cannot find a job. My name is Hashi Mohammed, and like Simon, I too was once a refugee. I came to London unaccompanied as a boy from a Somali family in Kenya. Today, the UK is my home. I was educated here. I became a barrister here. I married and started a family here. I made a life here. All because the UK did its duty under international law. Under the 1951 UN Refugee Convention, which Britain helped draft, one of its proudest humanitarian achievements. This is a country I love, but I also have a complicated relationship with it. There wasn't exactly a lot of help and support after I arrived. Almost 30 years on, I have everything I could have wanted, but that came through my own doing and a fair amount of luck. I've seen how many others have had to fight an uphill battle against our migration policies in order to secure the right just to live and work here. When the government announced its plan this April to send asylum seekers to Rwanda, being honest, I hesitated. I've left the refugee label behind. I don't want to be forever thought of in that way. But I felt this rising, visceral urge to do something. Now is not the time to sit on the sidelines. So I started digging and I soon discovered Israel went down this road before, just a few years ago. And it didn't end well. In fact, it was a disaster. So in this slow newscast from Tortoise, I want to know, what is this Rwanda plan? A 
clever policy solution or a cruel political strategy? What happened when it was tried before? And what was it like for the people caught up in it? Deportation or indefinite detention, that's the choice facing nearly 40,000 African refugees in Israel. Israel calls them infiltrators. We are not acting against refugees. We're acting against illegal migrants who come here not as refugees, but for work needs. They live with a constant threat of arrest and deportation. The official Israeli policy is we are uninterested in massive illegal immigration. In early 2018, a team of researchers published a harrowing report titled Better a Prison in Israel Than Dying on the Way. Its contents are as chilling as its title. The report features testimony from 19 Eritrean refugees who were sent to Rwanda and Uganda as a result of Israel's voluntary departure program. I reached out to the researchers, and they introduced me to one of them, Simon. Luan Bilai, a Tigrinya-speaking volunteer for United for Eritrea, interpreted his story for us. He was a student back in Eritrea, and then in 2007, they started teaching about political stuff, and then he dared to ask questions and that was not appreciated. And they were asking him, why would you even ask us these questions? And why would you be a bad example for the other students? And so they started arresting students who, who would ask questions and be critical of what they were hearing. So he was thinking, I have to go to a place where I can continue my studies. So that was his main concern, to complete his studies. Eritrea was a difficult place then, and it remains still. An autocratic regime, arbitrary killings, no political opposition and certainly no elections. If he'd stayed, Simon would have been conscripted into the military and become a soldier. He says he thought he'd have to be away from his family either way. He'd heard that it was hard to get to Europe, but it would be easier to go to Israel and start a new life there. In a democracy, with the chance of an education. So what he knew was that, uh, that it was a democratic state. And so he didn't worry that he would experience anything bad there. The journey there, smuggled over the border from Egypt, was tough. Simon found himself imprisoned for a month at the start. But he found a job in Israel as a street cleaner, paid in cash. It wasn't exactly the education he'd hoped for. But he lived there for six years on a visa he had to renew every three months, until one day he wasn't able to. When he went to the immigration office to renew his tourist visa kind of paper, um, they told him, you have three options. Either we deport you back to Eritrea, or you go to Rwanda, or you go to prison. And was that something that they said just to him or to everyone? They told all those refugees that had lived more than five years in the country. What the UK is now attempting, Israel set a precedent for less than a decade ago. Though, of course, they weren't the first to try out the scheme either. 
history repeats itself. That's no surprise to anyone. But normally we get a bit of a lag time before that happens. The UK has proposed essentially deporting asylum seekers arriving across the English Channel to Rwanda. And they've claimed it's very new. But actually there are a significant number of precedents in this area of countries that have tried to offshore asylum seekers and transfer responsibility both for processing those claims, but also for refugee protection as a whole. That's Alexander Betts. He's Professor of Force Migration and International Affairs at the University of Oxford. So, for instance, if we go back to the 1990s, the United States actually offshored asylum processing for Haitian arrivals to Guantanamo Bay, moved forwards um, to the early 2000s, and Australia tries to establish what it calls the Pacific Solution, later recast as Operation Sovereign Borders. And through that, Australia has essentially taken boat people arriving from a range of countries, including Afghanistan, and transferred them forcibly to islands like Nauru and parts of Papua New Guinea, where they've been held in detention almost indefinitely, um, waiting assessment of their refugee status claims. Now, those Australian precedents have been widely condemned by human rights organisations. We've seen huge examples of abuse, violence, self-harm, including by children. And organisations like Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International have condemned those Australian examples. Now, I think one of the main and obvious precedents for this example is that Israel has actually collaborated directly with Rwanda in the past. As we learn more about the UK proposal, we find that basically they've copied something almost exactly from something tried, tested and undoubtedly failed that was used by the Israeli government. Between 2014 and 2017, Israel embarked on what it called um, a voluntary deportation approach, a voluntary departure approach. Israel's approach was to take arrivals from Eritrea and Sudan and return them um, to, to either Rwanda or Uganda. Now, what was interesting about this was they were told they had a choice. They could either stay in a desert detention center in Israel or receive a payment of around 3,500 US dollars to go to Rwanda or Uganda. Simon was in dire circumstances when he was offered this deal. When he was in this prison for criminals with very harsh conditions where you barely get fresh air, you it's very hot. Yeah, it was so bad that he he had to choose to go to Rwanda. They made the conditions forced him to to make that choice. And did he see himself as settling in Rwanda? He couldn't really imagine to to make a living there and, and, and to settle in Rwanda because even before he left Israel, he knew that uh, Rwanda is a country that depends on on aid. So apparently they cannot provide opportunities for their own population. So how how could I find uh, no, any opportunities there? As soon as they set foot in Rwanda, the whole resettlement idea fell apart. Simon and the other men in his company were right to be concerned about Rwanda's ability to deliver any kind of service to the people coming its way from Israel. 
And that's still a live question. Is Rwanda able to provide a haven for asylum seekers who have left behind war zones and broken countries? A new safety review by the UK government admits some restrictions on freedom of expression and says refugees are prohibited from gatherings based on ethnicity, nationality, or any other sectarian ground. But it says it's unclear how this law is applied in practice. It also said people could face discrimination over their sexuality or gender identity. Groups like Amnesty International point to evidence of torture and excessive force by Rwandan police. And the UK's own ambassador for human rights criticised Rwanda for failing to investigate allegations of torture and trafficking. The rhetoric surrounding the UK's Rwanda plan seems, itself, to be of two minds. There is an element that uh, perhaps their bark is worse than the bite. This is David Anderson, QC, who's also a crossbench peer in the House of Lords. He has been involved in many of the debates in Parliament around the implementation of this policy. Particularly when it comes to the uh, idea that people could be sent to Rwanda to be processed. Now, the government seems to me to be saying two completely inconsistent things about that. On the one hand, uh, they they are signalling to those who wish to come here that uh, they will be sent to this pretty harsh and unpleasant place. And so it would be a very good reason for them not to come uh, over the channel. And yet they were saying to us in Parliament, uh, Rwanda is a wonderful democratic country. It's racist to suggest that uh, the treatment people will have there or the opportunities they will have there are any less than they would have in the UK. Those two things are, are not completely. But again, it's not as if we don't have recent, vivid examples to consider. Regardless of what the government says, we know Rwanda does not afford the same liberties or opportunities as the United Kingdom. That is made hauntingly clear in Simon's story and those of the other young Eritreans who made the journey. The Israeli academics who introduced us to Simon also spoke with 18 other Eritrean men who were sent from Israel to Rwanda and Uganda. From the moment their flights landed, the men were pulled into a nightmare. We've asked an actor to read from their testimonies. I landed in Rwanda. We got off the plane. Someone who works at the airport took all our documents. We asked him why. They responded that they'll give us something else instead. But they never gave us any documents. Once you leave Israel, no one knows who you are. They put us in a prison they called a hotel. A guard kept watch over us so we don't leave. But the state of Israel says that you can get documents and receive asylum and that you'll have a good life, like a dream. So then you, you are getting on the plane, you turn, in, you turn up in Rwanda. Just tell us about that process now. They arrived in Rwanda and they were received uh, by these immigration officers that would take away all their passports because if they were going to receive money from Israel, they would have to have some proof that they actually arrived in Rwanda so that they would take the passports. It might not surprise you to learn those passports were not returned, nor were those promises kept that were made back in Israel. Here's Alexander Betts again. What we saw in Israel's attempt to relocate refugees to Rwanda is that the Rwandan government didn't implement 
on the ground in the way that Israel had envisaged. Um, in, in fact, both in Rwanda and Uganda, there's some published evidence that at a local level, um, there was some support and even facilitation for some of those people to be able to move onwards to Europe. Counterintuitive from a human rights perspective, really problematic in terms of actually meaning that those people stayed for a very short period of time in Rwanda and then tried to move onwards um, with smugglers to Europe. There are, of course, notable differences between Israel's stated intentions and those of the UK's Home Office. At the time of its deportation programme, Israeli leaders minced no words about how they felt about their refugee population. One promise made by Interior Minister Eli Yishai comes to mind. We will make the lives of infiltrators miserable until they leave, he said in 2012. Britain's approach, on the other hand, has been superficially genteel. Our compassion may be infinite, but our capacity to help people is not. And I think it's important just to say to everyone in the House right now, you cannot put a price on saving human lives. But isn't the effect the same? To create a hostile environment for people seeking asylum, and then to send people back to the turmoil they've just escaped, or to send them elsewhere, where a new set of hardships awaits. In 2015, we asked for freedom of information request, asking the government uh, how many asylum seekers it has deported. And uh, we received an answer almost after a year, and it said that 6, 000, over 6,500 people were deported directly to Eritrea. We don't know what ha has happened to them. We only have a few testimonies of those who managed to re-escape. Uh, a lot of them were deported to Sudan. We have testimonies of people that arrived in Sudan were either uh, incarcerated, tortured, and we also have testimonies of people that were arrived in Sudan and were murdered on that same day. Sigal Kuk Avivi is a prominent human rights activist in Tel Aviv who petitioned Israel's Supreme Court to end the deportation program. We had to understand what is happening in Rwanda and Uganda. So we had already by that point testimonies from people arriving to Rwanda, being met at the airport by officials that did not wear uniform, but they had all their paperwork, knowing exactly when they would come, meeting them before the border control. So somebody let them in. We're not talking about private people. Escorting them to take their luggage and sneaking them out of the airport without going through border control taking all their paperwork, meaning that these people were at this point, no man's land, had no identity, nothing. They had nothing to show their identity, nothing to show the fact that they're asylum seekers, nothing to show that they were coming from Israel, nothing. These were like the invisible people and therefore very frightened people and people very easy to manipulate. Those in Rwanda, those arriving in Rwanda were taken to from the airport directly to a villa in Kigali. They were kept there in the villa in Kigali. Sometimes they were guarded and sometimes they were scared not to leave the villa. And they were in the villa between 24 hours to 40 hours. 
when they went out to to see how the living conditions could be in Kigali, they uh, quickly realized that it's uh, uh, impossible to find work. There were there, there seemed to be a lot of people who don't have uh, work. And they also knew that there was no uh, refugee camp where they could apply for asylum. So they couldn't even like stay there temporarily under protection as a refugee. So they didn't see how, how they could uh, stay there and live there. And that's why they decided to leave. That was the only option. Yeah. Okay, so uh, always his intention was to reach a democratic country. The UK might have a memorandum of understanding with Rwanda, but this isn't just a Rwanda plan. It's a Uganda plan, a Congo plan, a Sudan plan, a Libya plan. All the places these people will have to pass through to get to safety and stability. There was a guard, and this guard, I mean, he's actually not allowed to help them get out of the country, but, like, they gave him some money. And so he took them to the border, and it took four hours from Kigali. So when the, like, this guard, he took them to the border between Rwanda and Uganda, and then they crossed by foot. And then in uh, Uganda, they stayed for one week. And from there, they continued uh, to Sudan. It was very difficult, this journey, because um, they didn't have any papers, right? And and what they experienced in Rwanda was that wherever you want to go or whatever you want to do, you have to make, pay money. And that that continued like in the in the next country in Uganda is the same. Like they always have to like pay someone to be able to pass. All their testimonies, I called it a copy paste testimony. This is the Israeli activist Sigal Cook Avivi again. Doesn't matter whether it's a trans or Sudanese whether it's a 2014 or testimony from 2016 or testimony from 2017, they're all the same. They were all deported the same way, taken by a minivan. They told me how much they had to pay the drivers. And they told me the same hours of driving that took to the border. And then they all described it the same. And once they crossed the border, specific people were waiting for them in Uganda and again, taking them to Kampala, to the city in Kampala. And But when they arrived in Uganda, they were asking, where is this guy with his picture? So they knew exactly who would be arriving. Again, they would take them and then they would take them to, uh, to hotels. And in the hotels, again, would meet, they would be met by smugglers. And they were told that they have no paper, you're in danger. Uh, you would be uh, haunted by locals, haunted by the police, which is all true. Uh, and there's therefore you should start leaving and they would actually smuggle them. What Sigal describes, that's exactly what happened to Simon. From Rwanda to Uganda and on to South Sudan. South Sudan is very dangerous, especially because the Eritrean regime is also somehow like involved there with the militaries and there are checkpoints everywhere. And if you don't have papers, it's very dangerous. So that was very dangerous. And Sudan was also very, very uh, hard to navigate because there are also like uh, Eritrean spies that are operating there. And he was a political refugee. He's criticizing the regime, right? So they were very scared and had to be very careful uh, navigating it. Also at the time, the the protests um, 
started in Sudan, so yeah, they had to be very careful. From South Sudan, he continued on to Sudan. From Sudan, northwest to Libya. All the way, paying people to help him. All the way, watching people he knew fight for their lives and losing. All the way, facing unthinkable cruelty. One man said this about the journey from South Sudan to Sudan. This was the worst road in our journey. The road is full of thieves. They just want our money. They don't know if you're a human being or an animal. All the time you have to pay. If not, they kill you, beat you, throw you in the sand. Many people died this way. People who were in Israel with us. And we still don't know if they're alive. They were on the way, of course, uh, tortured, sold for, uh, for their organs, sold for slavery. Many died because of, uh, you know, they, were, they didn't drink water and they didn't have uh, dehydrated and the food. We know of thousands and thousands and thousands that died in the desert. Uh, just to throw you a number, one of the testimonies of the asylum seekers in Germany said, we left 10, we arrived three. Through the Sahara, onto Libya. Survivors of the journey recall horrific disregard for their lives. Two were sick. After they died, we said, people are dead. They said, why should we care? God willing, you will die too. After that, we threw the dead to the floor. That's it. They didn't even give us a blanket, I swear on my mother. Oppressive heat and unspeakable cruelty. Trauma after trauma. No water. Very, very hot. We ran out of food. One young woman and one young man died. There is a lot of sun. This is why people die. We buried them on the way. I don't want to remember this. It's hard to think about this. At night it comes to us in our head. It repeats. It wakes me up. What I saw, I don't want to remember this. I want to close that door. En route through Libya, Simon himself was nearly left for dead. So he fell off the truck and then he was beaten by the people that were driving the car. Because he fell off? Yeah, because the, yes. you were not being careful. They were go, they got angry. would. <laughs> And he couldn't move both his legs. And, and that was because, because he was beaten so badly, not from the fall. So he fell off the truck and then the people, the drivers came and then they beat him and, 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 and they beat him so much that he couldn't move both his legs. In Libya, human traffickers brought the men to camps where they were jailed unless they could pay their ransom. Most of the men described being held in warehouses without electricity, where several hundred people would be kept in a single room. If there are new people, there is food. If there are no people, no food. One bathroom for 600 people, no electricity. There is beating, people die. There is no hospital, no nothing. There were women and children there too. One man recalls being detained in a larger warehouse. I was in Libya for three months. 1,500 people in a room. People are sick. 
You don't shower for days. You don't go to the bathroom. I had a little bit of money, thanks be to God. But people who didn't have, every day they will beat them. They don't give them food, no shower. If they don't pay, God help them. A human being is not a human being in Libya. I know there's more Simon could tell me, but I'm not sure I can push him. For one thing, he could endanger himself and his family by speaking publicly about some of the things he experienced. And I know it isn't easy. And as Sigal told me, no one who's survived this journey really wants to talk about everything they witnessed. I always ask them, why did you leave? It was important for me to establish the fact that they didn't leave really voluntarily. And I had this specific hand you know, gesture they did alter their foreheads and they would say, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know why I broke and left. I don't know. I don't understand it. I'm in a very bad position here. And they also wanted to send, and they knew, some of them were willing to record messages in Tigrinya and in, in, in Arabic, telling the communities in Israel, do whatever you have to do, stay in any prison you have to stay, don't leave for this journey. This journey is horrible. And sometimes they even did this from Sweden. And the community would like say, you're in Sweden, man. Why are you saying this? You know, you're in a good situation. They would say, the journey has caused us such trauma that I, we truly recommend staying in Israel. So they don't like to speak about it. Also, they don't like to speak about it because some of them had to do unlawful things, okay, on the way. I don't blame them. They had to survive, but they did unlawful things. And their, 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 their life is useless. And many of them have been raped, including the men. And you have to understand this is a very traditional uh, community. They hardly speak about it. So it's very, very difficult for them to, to speak. Very difficult. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Does what's going on in the American election scare and bemuse you in equal measure? Want to know what Biden and Trump are up to without tearing your hair out? Then you need to listen to American Friction, the brand new podcast about the countdown to the big vote in November from the makers of Oh God, What Now?, The Bunker and Paper Cuts. Every Friday, we'll speak to leading experts and blockbuster commentators from the United States to explain the latest news and the big issues behind the vote. That's American Friction with me, Jacob Jarvis. Me, Chris Jones. And me, Nikki McCann Ramirez. Out every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts.
As the UK government has given us its drip-drip of details surrounding the Rwanda plan, plenty has been made of its unfeasibility. Setting aside the lawfulness and humanity of the plan, there's the exorbitant cost of pulling it off. The most successful precedent, and I'm doing air quotes here, is the Australian model, which cost 3.4 million Australian dollars per person. That's 2.2 million pounds. If the UK government is willing to commit to this plan, it strikes me as unlikely that the UK taxpayer will be equally enthusiastic. Surely the people in the Home Office and Number 10 who formulated the plan gave careful consideration to all its international precedents. We spoke with Rwanda's Foreign Minister, Vincent Baruta, to ask him whether the partnership agreement with the UK had included a discussion of Israel's so-called voluntary departure scheme. We consider that, but those are two different uh, programs. And uh, the one we're talking about today is a comprehensive program which will, it will be implemented over five years. And uh, it has that integration component but even for those uh, migrants you are referring to who were uh, relocated from Israel, the, the, uh, the plan is not to keep all these people in, like, uh, in prison. They'll be free to move around, they'll be free to go back to their countries of origin. And for those who would have uh, the opportunity to migrate legally to other countries, all these will be facilitated. So we should not consider the, uh, the program we had in place with uh, Israel as a failure. It, is, it was not a failure because the objectives of both programs are different. How different were the objectives really? Minister Beruta suggested the Rwandans were at least aware of some shortcomings in the previous partnership and taking steps to avoid them this time round. I was not involved in the Israel program. I know what is in this new program and uh, we have worked on it. We have discussed all these aspects and we have in place monitoring mechanism which will, will allow us to adjust whenever needed and make sure that we the program is successful. Otherwise, it is, we cannot compare both programs. Many of us have asked, is this all just a cynical bit of theatre? Will anyone really be put on a flight and sent out of the UK? Or is this just the red meat of populism, a useful way to signal to anti-immigration voters that the government shares their priorities? Or perhaps to lament a cabal of lefty lawyers standing in the way? There's no doubt that this hardline politics of immigration is ruthlessly effective in dividing voters and hardening support with the most uncompromising conservatives. The polling that came out on the day of the Rwanda announcement showed only 35% of the population supported the policy. But amongst conservatives and people who voted for Brexit, 6 out of 10 backed it. So it's no wonder the government reaches for the Rwanda plan every time they're in political trouble and need to change the subject. And the irony is that Boris Johnson and Priti Patel keep having a go at activist lawyers like me. I say guilty. Baroness Shami Chakrabarti, Labour peer and human rights campaigner, holds a grim view of the intent behind the plan. What the government wants to do is to replace the rule of law whereby every refugee and asylum seeker is treated equally and fairly and have their claim considered 
they want to replace that with just their discretion. They can do whatever they like. They'll decide who is a good refugee and who's a bad refugee, who's worthy. Who... So we'll pick which conflicts, which countries, which races, which nationalities we choose. So, you know, Hong Kong dissenters, good. Um, Ukrainian refugees, good. Afghans, Syrians, you, you, you take my point. And, and instead of having a, one law for everyone, they want to make up the rules as they go along. So while we've been investigating this story, the day-to-day -day news has gathered pace. The Prime Minister was in trouble over breaking the law on COVID restrictions, and up popped another Rwanda announcement. The first flight carrying asylum seekers from Britain to Rwanda is expected to take place in two weeks, the UK government has said. That's under a plan announced by Prime Minister Boris... The first people to be sent to Rwanda were scheduled to leave on the 14th of June. It remains to be seen whether those who received formal removal direction letters at the end of May will, in fact, make their way to East Africa in the coming days and weeks. The Home Office is up against an onslaught of legal challenges, brought about by those lefty lawyers. Those challenges are based on the lawfulness of the removal, how the policy has been introduced, and the degrading and inhumane treatment that these refugees may face when they reach Rwanda. Remember, Britain is a signatory to the 1951 UN Convention on Refugees. The deal with Rwanda is not a treaty and does not supersede that duty to recognise and protect people. And yes, of course there are going to be uh, legal eagles, uh, liberal left lawyers who will uh, try to make this difficult. And of course, that's, we always knew this was going to happen, but it's a very, very sensible thing. If For critics of the government, even if it is all just a show, that doesn't detract from the policy's essential cruelty. And it doesn't diminish what it says about the government that is driving it. And according to Lord Anderson, what that says about us. I think at the end of the day, we have to look at ourselves in the mirror and say that um, if governments are going to do brutal things, it's because there are sufficient numbers of people in the democracy uh, who approve of those brutal things. Uh, and uh, it would be quite difficult, I think, to deny when you look at the levels of support the government has, uh, that there is at least a substantial body of opinion uh, that thinks this is uh, a sensibly robust way of dealing with an intractable problem. It may be misplaced, but Britain still has a reputation for compassion. Listen to Segal, the human rights activist. I remember once an asylum seeker here in Israel told me he, he took pictures when he was in the Holod Detention Center, and he hardly took pictures of the facility. He took pictures, beautiful pictures. And I remember when he was asked, why don't you take pictures of the detention center? And his answer was, countries learn bad things from one another. And the idea that uh, UK, <laughs> of all places, is trying to send refugees that have gone through such horrific life experience are going to be deported to Rwanda. It's, it, it feels like I'm in an endless cycle. It doesn't end. It will never end. Simon arrived in Europe in October 2015. He came to Europe on a small boat, precisely the kind that would make him illegal in the eyes of the UK government. And that would mark him as a candidate for deportation to Rwanda under Priti Patel's policy. Simon had been beaten while he was in Libya and had to be carried aboard the boat. 
There were 280 people on the boat that left Libya. And they had to be rescued as they crossed the Mediterranean. Today, Simon lives in Germany, in Dresden. That's where we met, in that airless hotel room. He works at a printing plant, and he has refugee status. And still, he cannot really plan for a future. But he is at least safe. Many who left Israel for Rwanda just did not survive. I saw 400 people inside the water. They drowned. I saw people get in and all of them died on the boat. I saw nine boats went into the sea. We were before the ship. Many children died, I remember. I don't have the strength anymore to talk about it. Tortoise editor David Taylor spoke for this podcast to people with knowledge of what has happened inside Priti Patel's home office. And he's here in the studio with me right now. Hi, David. Hey, Hashi. Yeah, the picture we get from inside the home office surprised me a bit. There's definitely a tension between officials and ministers. And, you know, years of failed policies means there's not exactly massive confidence that the Rwanda plan will work. But a source told us they didn't believe this idea was just a gimmick, that the Home Office really does want to find, as they put it, genuine, durable solutions. They told us about um, Patel's impatience and frustration in meetings about asylum. She, how she believed that the small boats crossing the channel was just a tremendous embarrassment because, to her mind, the public could see and just wondered why the Home Office wasn't able to put an end to it and why the British government seemed just useless in the face of it. So, yeah, there's this tension between ministers and officials, but I thought also like a really important distinction emerged in the way senior officials look at the Rwanda plan and the government's ideas for dealing with small boats in the English Channel. We've been told senior officials did fight against Patel's plan to use the Navy to turn back small boats in the English Channel last year. Why did they do that? What was the reason why they fought that plan? Well, I I mean, I think they believed it would have been illegal, unsafe and unworkable. Patel wanted to go ahead anyway, but then she abandoned the policy right on the cusp of a legal defeat. But now they are obviously trying this Rwanda plan. I mean, do we did we get a sense of officials supporting this plan? I mean, the way one source put it to me, you know, a million things can go wrong and it may not work, but nothing else is working. And they said this thing, it should be given a sporting chance. OK, in trying to give this a sporting chance, did you get a sense of how much preparation how much research and work went into thinking through the consequences of the Rwanda plan? I I mean, it it became clear they'd been on a fact-finding mission to Rwanda last November. We found out that the Home Office visited a UNHCR facility. It's about 40 miles outside of Kigali. There's people there who've been rescued from these hellish conditions in Libya, and they're housed now in huts and given medical support, and there's like a hope that they might be found refuge in other countries. Vincent Beruta has spoken widely about Rwanda's goodwill towards asylum seekers, a sentiment he echoed in conversation with us. We have a deep connection to the plight of migrants. 
we have here were more than 130,000 refugees, most of them from Burundi and uh, DRC. We have refugees from Afghanistan. We have uh, asylum seekers who are being evacuated from Libya. We are hosting them in a, an emergency transit center while they wait for to find countries to where they will be relocated. So Rwanda has been in uh, this migration partnership for, for, for a while. What Biruta describes all sounds a bit vague, but the promise on the face of it, at least, is for something better than what happened with Israel's asylum seekers. On arrival, these uh, migrants will be taken to a reception center where they will be guided through all the options in terms of submitting asylum applications and other administrative matters. So they'll be uh, temporarily hosted in an accommodation facility while their, their application is being considered. There will be a, a transit center where they will be received for for their application to be processed. After this, those who will be found to have a genuine asylum claim, we we offer to them an indefinite right to stay in Rwanda and work to integrate them into a local community. And we will start uh, then uh, implementing the program to which will be tailored to the needs of everyone. For those who need uh, higher education, those who need to go through vocational training, and so on and so forth. And we create job opportunities for them as well. And so David is still with me here. And David, we've been told that the UK government will pay Rwanda £120 million over five years. And that Rwanda and the UK will monitor the asylum seekers together. I mean, what are your reflections on that? following your conversations? Yeah, the way it was put to us by a source with knowledge of the negotiations was that, you know, the Rwandans were not wholly mercenary about the scheme. It's not just about the money. And that they had some empathy for human suffering because of their own terrible recent history. Our source also said there would be British oversight. They said it's not in anybody's interests if this thing is just a complete fiasco and a demonstrable breach of human rights. The Home Office, they said, doesn't want the thing to fall flat. And then the other thing they said, I suppose it was this, the big thing now is how many will the Home Office manage to get over there? There's obviously a hell of a difference, they said, if you're sending a dozen a month or a thousand a month. But I'm curious, though, did you have a conversation with them about how the whole Rwanda plan came about? I mean, what was it, where, where did it sort of, where was it given birth, if you like? Yeah, and our, our source said it definitely came from the Australian experience. They intercepted boats coming from Indonesia and either turned the boats round or they parked them on Christmas Island and then they shipped them off to places like Papua New Guinea. But, you know, there was one other thing that we learned and I think it's pretty stunning. Um, Senior source told us, you know, I don't think the Israeli scheme was studied. I'm not even sure we were aware of it, they said to me. Ministers weren't aware of it. It didn't come up. So where are we? Since April, everything that's been said publicly about the Rwanda plan has sounded draconian, especially to the ears of this former refugee presenting this podcast. 
even if these two countries provide all that they have promised and completely turn recent history on its head, at the heart of this is a failure of the UK government to fulfil its international obligations and an inability to show basic decency. We now know the Rwanda plan was inspired by Australia's approach to offshoring its asylum responsibilities, that British ministers didn't even seem to know about the disastrous Israel-Rwanda scheme, and that Priti Patel's own home office has been divided at a very senior level over this policy. And the more I learn about Simon and all the others who went through Israel's deportation scheme, the more I realise that's not even half of it. Because for the people who are affected by the new Rwanda scheme, the story will not end when they leave the United Kingdom. And it very likely won't end when they arrive in Rwanda. If the recent past shows us anything, it could end at the hands of human traffickers or in the grip of slavery. It could end in the Sahara, dying of thirst, or in the Mediterranean, by drowning. It could end with untreated illness or wounds after rape, torture, loss of limbs. All of this after our UK government claims it is offering a fresh start. I've heard these stories of the people caught up in the last Rwanda deportation scheme, the one that Israel had to abandon after legal challenges in its courts, and I think of the people who come across the channel to England. The overwhelming majority of them from Iraq or Yemen or Syria or Eritrea are actually granted asylum. So it's not that the UK is denying that these are genuine refugees. It's rather this, that we have no wish to help. We don't want the problem and we wish to only wash our hands of the responsibility. It leaves me sitting with this question. When did we become too cruel to care? Like Seagal, I can't help but feel like we are stuck in an endless loop, where harsh policies get recycled by one government after another. Maybe this is no surprise. But the politicians seem much more interested in hanging on to their supporters than finding fair solutions. And after our interview, I wondered if Simon was feeling caught in that same endless cycle of his own, telling his story, while simultaneously governments like mine fail to heed the cautionary tale. What do you, you know, when you tell your story, what do you hope people who hear it gain from it when you tell your story you know what do you hope it achieves yeah if i say uh, with my uh, history from uh, different people he can maybe it's not all but some from my history he can help it from other people can help other people who yeah. have a similar yeah. situation to you i was so impressed with simon his composure his fortitude he spent so much of his adult life just trying to get settled, to start over. Now he's in Dresden, at the beginning, or at a beginning, at age 31. But he's still young. He can make so much of his life 
if he wants, starting now. And I admire his attitude and his desire to help people. He's an optimist, even if his outlook is forever stained by the unnecessary trauma he has had to go through. When we parted, I asked him one last thing, and I don't think I'll ever forget his answer. Will it work? Will, it, will such a policy work? Because apparently Israel's not using it anymore. Do you think that it's a good policy that could work for a country? He thinks it's like this is as unlikely to work out as it would be that there would be a democracy in Eritrea. <laughs> Our special thanks go to Shahar Shaham, Lior Berger, and Liat Bolzman, authors of the report better a prison in Israel than dying on the way. This episode was produced by Morgan Childs. I'm Hashi Mohammed. The sound designer was Mao Lasetto and the editor was David Taylor. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Slow Newscast. If you like what we do, you like our stories, you like our investigations, and you want to support us and you want to get more of what we do, then you can join us as a member of our newsroom. Just go to tortoisemedia.com forward slash friend and use my code BASHA50. That's B-A-S-I-A 50. Thank you, and I'll see you next week. Traffic jams tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Does what's going on in the American election scare and bemuse you in equal measure? Want to know what Biden and Trump are up to without tearing your hair out? Then you need to listen to American Friction, the brand new podcast about the countdown to the big vote in November from the makers of Oh God, What Now, The Bunker and Paper Cuts. Every Friday, we'll speak to leading experts and blockbuster commentators from the United States to explain the latest news and the big issues behind the vote. That's American Friction with me, Jacob Jarvis. Me, Chris Jones. And me, Nikki McCann Ramirez. Out every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts.